children seek attention from care providers for a couple of vital developmental milestones. First and foremost, we connect for security, to have our basic needs that for survival met. As infants were born premature, we have no capability of surviving on our own. So we connect and establish bonds with caregivers so that we can express our needs for food, for and other nourishment, for protection, for warmth, for uh, soothing and so forth. We connect also to have our emotional states and autonomic nervous systems regulated. Human beings are a co-regulating species. We do not lastingly regulate our nervous system or our emotional or affect states on our own. Uh, human beings, in fact, in, in prolonged emotional isolation, invariably become dysregulated. And if you'd like to learn more about that, there are numerous studies, including the work of John, the great John Cochiopo at the University of Chicago and so many other psychologists. But a third reason we connect is to learn what to expect from others, and especially to learn which situations are safe and advantageous for us and which situations are harmful and threatening. So these distinctions between what is safe and what is dangerous, what is good for us and what is bad for us, are not inherently obvious. No one is born knowing situations in the world that are actually bad for us, especially because so many situations in the world have changed, so it's not baked in through evolution. The only few things we are inherently frightened of, snakes, dark, and so forth. But the bulk of the situations, interpersonal events, things that we gravitate towards or away from are taught to us through interpersonal experience. Children on their own can be excited and chase stray balls into traffic. They can try to eat inedible objects. They can crawl onto windowsills. They can do all kinds of dangerous things. And it's the reaction of their care providers that train the child that those endeavors are harmful, not good for us, endangering. On the other hand, children can be scared of new novel situations because the right hemisphere tends to respond very much to novel situations and very often even safe situations, our first response might be fear. So children at first might be, and often very often are, terrified of sleeping alone at night. Children can be terrified of separations and going to schools. Children can be scared of what's in closets or underneath beds. Children can be scared of socializing with other children, and all of these experiences are safe. It's the parents that have to, through their reactions and their responses, inform the child non-verbally that these situations are safe. So the parents' reactions, emotional, nonverbal cues, signal to the child when the child is safe, when the child can relax, and when the child is unsafe. In fact, if you ever want to see a classic example of this, 
watch children um, uh, play with parents. And you'll see what will happen very often is a young child will trip and fall and then look up at the parent. And if the parent smiles, the child will smile. And if the parent looks disturbed or frightened or concerned, then the child will cry. Again, the child's affect or autonomic nervous system is cued by the nonverbal facial and embodied responses of the parents. So we learn primarily from what parents do, not what they say. It's not the words of a distressed mother whose child has run away from her and is near traffic. It's not the words that a mother says to her two-year-old, don't run away from me, uh, that changed the child's behavior. In fact, um, <clears throat> verbal commands are not really going to change behavior of children for many years after that. And parents, unfortunately, classically often fall into the mistaken belief that they can somehow change behavior through languaging when they're talking to children that are two or three or four years old. Even though those children might recognize words, words they recognize will not change their behaviors. <clears throat> so a parent that says, leave me alone, if they're busy, will not convince the child to not seek attention. And the words don't run away from me or don't run towards traffic will not have any effect on the child's behavior. But it's the emotional distress on the parent's face, the agitation, the, the fear that, that the parent evinces on their facial expression that links for the child that doing that behavior is not good. So the child doesn't learn from language. It learns from the nonverbal cues of the parent. Now, this is important. Of course, if a parent says to a child, you can achieve anything in life if you put your mind to it, but that parent exhibits absolutely no agency or confidence in their own life, the child will not learn to seek uh, goals. The child will learn to be uh, frightened of risk and will learn to not have a sense of perseverance or confidence. The child does not learn from what the parent says. It learns from what the, the parent, how the parent behaves. If a parent extols that it's important to be kind and loving in relationships, yet has found themselves in a relationship without kindness, where they're constantly at odds with their partner, the child will not learn that relationships are built on empathy. The child will learn that relationships are built on escalating anger, where one has to shout to get their needs met. If a parent is anxious over money, but tells a child not to be anxious, the child will be anxious around money. If parents are insecure or ill at ease around individuals from different ethnic groups or different sexual inclinations or different religious affiliations, then the child will learn those biases. Biases do not get passed down primarily through speech acts by the parents, but by the parents' nonverbal responses to other individuals. Uh, 
worried parents produce children who are prone to anxiety disorders. So again, uh, the big uh, theme here is that we learn through observation. If you'd like to learn more about this, uh, read the work of Bandura. Bandura in social learning theory showed that uh, we learn by observing and not just observing parents at first, but then we'll learn from observing how other children act in school grounds. And we're an imitative species, um, mimetic species. We copy the behaviors of others and the behaviors and the emotional responses of others over time are solidified in us, not as ideas in our left hemisphere, but as automatic, fast gut feelings, internal, non-conscious, but very strong impulses along with states of attention, but internal states. So if in childhood, uh, through a uh, countless series of experiences, a child sees that when uh, a mother or father is emotionally uh, distressed by a certain situation, the child will internalize these experiences and start to feel gut feelings that are negative or withdrawal or fear-based when those situations occur in their life. So parents, if a child sees that a parent is, um, uh, becomes dysregulated when um, a, another person uh, contradicts them, then the child will grow up to avoid conflict and find conflict very, very scary. And the moment they even see two other people engaged in a debate, that grown up will now feel fast gut impulses or feelings saying they're not safe. Because that same situation in childhood created uh, what the parents evinced or enacted a sense of discomfort. Feelings in us in many ways express core unconscious emotional beliefs. They express to us when we're safe, when we're not safe, what we can expect of other people, who to be attracted to, how to respond to novel situations. For example, um, if we grow up with emotionally unavailable parents, we will have feelings that actually in many ways respond to emotionally unavailable people that actually incline us towards them because that will be familiar. If we have, and if we're, we meet someone who's emotionally available, we will not have any feelings whatsoever that motivate us because the people, we didn't experience that in childhood. So just as much as parents' emotional responses can encode fear in us, they also can normalize and naturalize things that shouldn't be normalized and naturalized. For example, if a parent is emotionally abusive to the child, 
that child might very well grow up to be in an abusive relationship when they grow up because that because a, uh, uh, extreme uh, forms of violent communication were normalized in childhood. So in general, uh, positive experiences or, or familiar experiences to us create what's called approach impulses. That's impulses that, that tell us we're safe because it's familiar or because in our childhood we felt safe or our parents felt safe in these situations. So um, the Buddha called these positive feelings Sukha Vedana. I like those, that term, Sukha Vedana. Negative experiences or unfamiliar experiences will create very often Dukkha Vedana or withdrawal impulses, fight, flee, or fawn. So in general, so many of the emotional impulses and inclinations and dispositions we experience in adult life have been set decades earlier in the formative experiences of life and especially the types of situations that are repeated constantly in childhood. These gut feelings that tell us when we're safe who to attach to, when we're about to be rejected, that and tell us, uh, uh, you know, what kind of food we want to eat. These are unconscious again. They're very durable dispositions, and they're very, 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 very difficult to change. For a long time, in fact, psychologists believe that implicit beliefs were almost impossible to change. Now we know that's not true, that they are in fact plastic and that they can be changed, but it requires a significant amount of effort to, to change them. Now, if many people try to survive childhood in abandoning childhood situations by blocking awareness of their feelings, and that uh, very often in avoidant coping strategies, people will learn to what's called blob, block subcortical awareness. That's a fancy term for just being so up in our thoughts or distracted by external situations that we learn to not pay attention to embodied feelings. Now that can come at a huge expense because stress often imparts vital information to us. When we're under stress, when we don't have enough positive connections in our life, when we've, we're working too hard at the expense of our physiological well-being, when we are working under adverse conditions, when we feel unsafe, but we're not aware of the feelings that are happening, we will be unaware, if we're unaware of our stress, then cortisol is chronically secreted and cortisol is very damaging physiologically. It can compromise our immune system. It's been implicated in everything from arterial sclerosis and strokes to cancer and so forth because chronic stress stops the um, literally the uh, white blood cell 
from being built by the body. Instead, we build red blood cells because we think we're constantly under attack. More frequently, if people fail to understand their feelings, what are gut feelings, they can often mistake gut feelings for physical ailments. And this is far more common than uh, we might believe. Every year, without exaggeration, uh, countless upon countless hordes of people will show up to hospitals mistaking panic attacks for heart attacks, mistaking panic attacks for respiratory ailments, mistaking chronic anxiety disorders for gastrointestinal disturbances. People will uh, wind up with a very common symptom is delusional parasitosis, where people mistake their feelings, believing that they are instead infested with bugs or insects. Um, Psychosomatic disorders or conversion disorders are very, very common. And so it's hard to imagine, but so many countless millions every year will have their symptoms alleviated when they show up at hospitals, not by giving them a physiological uh, approach, but a psychological approach. In fact, it's very common with people who show up to hospitals who believe they're having asthma attacks, sometimes the first line of treatment will be to give them a benzodiazepine, calming them down, ending the panic, and allowing them to breathe comfortably. So it's important to know what our feelings are and when they're happening. It's, it's almost impossible to overstate the influence that feelings have on our behaviors. If we look at the work of Antonio Damasio in Descartes' era and so many other of his important books, uh, he's shown conclusively that feelings or what he calls somatic markers are what make our choices for us. In almost the bulk situations of our life, when we're making a decision, we don't actually rationally think it through. We actually follow the internal embodied gut feelings that are us. So when we go to, we decide what movies to watch or what, or what books to read or what to order in a restaurant or what, what kind of person to pursue for uh, friendship, what job we're gonna take, what person we're gonna pursue for a romantic relationship. We tend to be deeply influenced primarily by feelings, not by rational thought. Geigerinzer says that um, the head of the Max Planck Institute says that feelings are a predictive assessment letting us that teach us how to respond to internal and external environments. Bowlby, Alan Shore, Dan Siegel say feelings dictate who we attach to and what we expect from relationships. Carl Rogers, Eugene Genlin, and Dan Brown said that feelings define our sense of self. If we feel uncomfortable when we are in, uh, we are offered opportunities, that negative self-esteem, which is embodied in our feelings, will lead us to not embrace opportunities for ourselves. So basically everything 
that uh, the way we define ourselves and determine how we act in the world are founded upon how we feel. In fact, Damasio said that Descartes' great error was that he shouldn't have said, I think, therefore I am. He should have said, I feel, therefore I am. Carl Rogers said that the self is not based on the stories we tell about ourselves, but the self that determines who we are is based on how we feel in our bodies in different situations. So early negative experiences can create feelings that make us, that normalize unsafe situations and make us um, avoid entirely safe situations. For example, early experiences where uh, in early schooling environments where we feel uh, for those who have slight learning disorders associated with dyslexia, they will have um, early traumatic experiences when called upon to read something for the class that's on a blackboard. And so from that point forward, they might in their future life struggle in public speaking or in situations where they are the spotlight of attention is upon them because early on in life they were a for, uh, they were taught by experience that being the center of attention leads to feelings of shame inadequacy and other children laughing at them and so they will in future situations where the spotlight of attention is on them will feel uncomfortable Likewise, children that grow up in family systems where seeking attention is often greeted with uh, frustration and annoyance by the parent. Likewise, children that are shamed by their siblings for expressing their fear or their disappointment. All of these learnings will later on in life turn uh, into feelings that will create a sense of vulnerability, fear, endangerment in situations that are actually entirely safe. On the other hand, as we said, uh, early experiences that are unsafe can be normalized. A child that grows up in a setting where there's a lot of violence, perhaps in, not only in the, maybe in the family system, but out on the streets around will, by the time they become an adult, will become inured and won't even have the basic fear feelings to respond to threats. They will have a sense of excitement or normalcy around endangerment. So adults, in other words, need to develop the capability of discerning when to follow their feelings and when to disregard or uh, put aside feelings and choose to follow different paths, different new novel responses to uh, situations. Um, there's a often a very subtle differentiation between what is safe and appropriate and what is not safe. And uh, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. Many years ago, I was working with a, a woman who um, 
it became clear in the, uh, the counseling work I was doing, it became very clear that she was chronically mistaking feelings that were signaling to her that she was actually not safe. She was mistaking them with feelings of lust and attraction. So she was actually compulsively in a repetition compulsion, uh, winding up in relationships with partners who were not emotionally safe. Uh, most importantly, we have to learn to not overly trust our feelings without seeking feedback from others. While many clinicians such as Gerd Geigerenzer <coughs> at uh, Max Planck Institute notes that feelings can provide fast heuristics that help us make decisions that, uh, are, can, that can be very useful. Many more clinicians from uh, people like Alan, the great Alan Shore, who's an expert on the right hemisphere and its role in the way we attach to others. Um, and uh, Dan Siegel and so many others, Daniel Kahneman, whose work with uh, Tversky won the Nobel Prize, showed that uh, there are two different kinds of thinking, there's, or two, or response. There's thinking which is slow, deliberate, uh, rational at times, and then there's feelings which are fast and intuitive. And the fast and intuitive can be um, essentially uh, co-opted by incredibly irrational processes. So how do, in what situations should we learn to pay attention and override our gut impulses? And what situations should we follow our gut? That is in many ways, the most important question to ask in our adult life. Well, here's a simple answer to that. We have to literally pay honest attention to what arenas in life we are getting our needs met. We have been making good decisions and what areas in life we are repeatedly having disappointing experiences or results. So um, for example, someone who has a lot of work experience over time in an endeavor, maybe they're a doctor, maybe they're a painter, maybe they're a, uh, um, a tech specialist, who knows what they are, but they've developed years and years of experience and they are, their experience has been honed by many, many interpersonal events. These, and they are good at their job. They are, they've been shown to be competent. These are people who should follow their guts because their guts is, Geigerens are shown their gut feelings or their gut feelings, their impulses, their intuition will be honed by a lot of experience and their experiences led to good results. On the other hand, there are many arenas in life where we might struggle. And those are the situations in life where the first step to meaningful change is not to try to tell ourselves to act differently, but to become aware of the feelings and what the impulses are, to learn how to 
not follow those feelings and to learn how to develop new impulses. So for example, someone who chronically in friendships or romantic relationships is not getting their needs met. I can't tell you how many people in the course of counseling over 15 years I've met who have either anxious or avoidant attachment styles and chronically are again and again and again connecting with individuals who are not uh, either available for emotional intimacy or not reliable or whose needs are entirely different than their own. And each time these individuals will want to believe that they still should follow the same things that they're looking for. And they will desperately say, I, you know, I, I should, I, 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 I have to trust what I feel. And again and again and again, they will have the same results. Now, of course, if in an er a relationship we're not feeling attracted to a partner, that's it's at all. It's very difficult for that to be a relationship that will grow and build. But at the same time, following feelings of excitement and lust and desire again and again and again, and winding up with unhappy results means that we have to learn to pay attention to the types of feelings we're experiencing and know when to disregard them. In general, people who have anxious attachment tend to follow feelings of excitement and disregard, on the other hand, feelings of safety. They constantly believe that they fundamental feelings they should be experiencing when they hook up with someone for a connection should be feelings of excitement rather than the feelings of actually being safe and settled and with someone that is empathetic and available. In the Buddha's teachings of the Paticca Samuppada, the Buddha taught that in like what we've covered in early life events, what he called Nama Rupa, the formation of the mind and body connection, we, we have these traits that are developed, and these traits lead to what he calls Vedana, or feelings. So in any situation, we will have feelings. He said there's three kinds, positive feelings, Sukha Vedana, negative feelings, Dukkha Vedana, and neutral feelings. Um, so these feelings, the Buddha said, if we don't pay attention to them, trying to change behavior is almost impossible. He said that if you do not pay attention to the underlying somatic experiences in the body, in interpersonal events or situations where we are chronically not getting our needs met, we will not have telling ourselves or trying to inform ourselves or simply trying to change our behaviors are not going to work because it's too late. Feelings will turn into impulses, which will turn into actions, which will turn into beliefs. There, once that uh, chain, he called it, is started, there's no stopping it. Uh, 
in early Buddhism, the weak link in the chain is paying attention to when feelings arise, observing them and not acting on them, learning how to be with feelings, but not be pushed or impelled to act on their behalf. Now, of course, the areas we most want to do this would be in the areas of life where our feelings are leading us astray. But it's important to develop this tool of mindful awareness of feelings so that we can develop the capacity of discerning which feelings are important to follow, when which feelings we're mistaking for other internal messages, and which feelings to become to completely disregard. This is a cornerstone of dialectical behavioral therapy, which talks about internal awareness, distress tolerance, which is another way of saying becoming aware of feelings and learning to be with them rather than act to withdraw or to fight or flee on their behalf. In somatic experiencing, therapies, sensory motor therapy, psychodynamic, all forms of new therapies. The foundation is upon building in the client an internal awareness of the underlying gut feelings that arise in different situations and being able to develop a kind of awareness where we can override or learn to find new impulses despite what those feelings indicate, or we can learn times when these feelings have vital information to impart. The person who mistakes excitement for safety will have to learn to discern the distinct distinction between the two. So I should note that uh, one important time that uh, awareness of feelings plays such a constructive role in my life is uh, in part of the, the bulk of my work is in Buddhist spiritual counseling. I generally meet with a whole lot of people every week, one-on-one, -on -one, and, you know, help process different life experiences. And um, sometimes, um, People are experiencing things that are very difficult that understandably make them angry or very sad, very disturbed, very frustrated. And it's a natural impulse in people because we start to feel uncomfortable when other people are feeling uncomfortable because we copy other people's internal states to try to say or do something that will make them feel better immediately. But that doesn't actually create an empathetic bond. What people really need when they're feeling uncomfortable, distressed, angry, sad, lonely, is for somebody just to listen and be there with them in their experience. So to be able to do this, I need to be able to pay attention while I not only to the person I'm with, but to the feelings that I'm experiencing and to be able to settle them and soften and moderate them so that I won't constantly just try to step in and fix what people are experiencing, that I'll give them room and space to allow their own feelings to be 
to have room to be expressed. So as part of our meditation tonight, we're going to be practicing mindfulness of feelings. And we're doing this in a way that we can learn to discern what, how we can, one, watch feelings arise and pass without being, without acting on their, on their behalf. And two, the subtle differences between feelings that indicate <clears throat> excitement versus which feelings indicate safety. And so uh, that's tonight's talk. I hope something in it was worth listening to. And now finding a really comfortable seated position. And as you're doing that, this is the time each week where I remind you that uh, as a Buddhist pastor, all of my work is done entirely by donation. If you don't have uh, uh, the ability to um, support my work, that's fine. You know, uh, if you do have the capability of supporting my work, uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And thank you for listening. And so let's meditate. I'm going to take off my glasses. Closing my eyes, finding a, finding a very nice upright position where I can feel my sit bones are directly beneath my shoulders. My chin is parallel to the floor. My head is not in front of my body, but is somewhat aligned with the shoulders. When the body is balanced, we don't need to exert muscle uh, muscles to keep ourselves upright. So the, in fact, the muscles can begin to relax. The body can settle. <clears throat> of course, if you're lying down on a floor, that's fine. Just try to sink evenly into the floor or couch or whatever you're lying on. Just really try to let all the body settle into the ground. And if we're sitting upright, try to have less of the weight of the back against the chair. The balance should be in the uprightness and the sit bones should be firmly planted without any resistance to the chair. And then it's always nice to have the feet uh, flat on the floor beneath us and just rest the hands wherever they feel most comfortable. I have mine on my legs near my kneecaps. And um, so I have my shoulders dropped and relaxed and my chest is open. So um, the vagal nerve is Engage, slowing down respiration, heart rate. 
And our heart rate determines so much of our state of being, our affect. My belly is soft and pliant. That's another center of the dorsal vagal nerve cluster or the subdiaphragmatic vagal nerve. And my face is relaxed. And I'm going to take a nice full in-breath and then a very slow exhalation. The longer the exhalations, the more we release acetylcholine, which helps down-regulate the nervous system. And that's what we want to do. We want to pull ourselves or down-modulate ourselves from any state of stress. Long, smooth exhalations. Soft, pliant belly. Facial muscles relaxed. And if we can settle the eyes, that's very helpful too. Um, when the eyes are settled behind closed eyelids, we'll find that the mind settles as well. And we're going to try to reel our thinking away from any content that's about situations that are not actually present right here and right now. <clears throat> so it's okay to think if the thoughts concern, how can I relax right now? How can I feel really comfortable? Thoughts about what is the best present sensation to pay attention to? Buddha called this kind of thinking Dhamma Vikaya. One of the forms of enlightenment is to discern how to make ourselves relaxed, how to encourage ease and comfort. But we're not going to think about anything that's not happening right here and right now. We're not going to get or chase after images or ideas about what might happen in the future or events that have happened previous to this moment in time. The only time that we can experience any form of liberation, any form of self-care, any form of growth is right here and right now. We can't achieve any of those things by thinking about the future or by mulling over the past. Liberation comes from inclining the mind to what is actually happening in this moment 
attending to our experience with a welcoming, non-judgmental, open-hearted, compassionate awareness. And for the purposes of tonight's talk, we're going to incline our awareness towards the physical sensations that are arising right now in the areas of the body where gut feelings are felt most commonly and strongly. This will be the area in the front of the body, areas around the eyes and the mouth, the throat, the chest, and the abdominal region. So let's pay attention to the front of the body, the torso, the throat, and the face. And while other areas can also express feelings as well as other states of mind, for the purposes of this meditation, we're just going to become familiar with the feelings that are expressing our unconscious beliefs about the present moment, about how we feel in general. So we'll look for any tightness, tightness or clenching of muscles in the face, around the eyes, forehead, mouth, the throat, the shoulders, chest, or belly, just, or any sensations of ease and release and relaxing. We're not going to change any feelings. We're not going to judge any feelings. We're not, we're just going to see how these embodied states are actually very often expressing our beliefs about what we're experiencing in each moment of our life. So I'm just gonna sit here quietly for a while with you and just practice being aware of the arising and passing of feelings and noticing how those feelings might incline the mind towards busyness or feelings of safety and ease.
So at this point, we'll move on to an exercise, allowing us to learn how to relate to feelings that are leading us towards uh, unsuccessful behaviors. So let's visualize something that we have an almost compulsive uh, gravitation towards. For some of us, that might be kind of food that we uh, will impulsively eat, uh, even beyond what is healthy for us. For some, it might be the feelings that lead us to compulsive shopping, the feelings of anxiousness that lead us to constantly check news or tech for text messages, any behavior that uh, we gravitate towards that doesn't necessarily lead to happy results. So try to, in your mind, visualize whatever it is that is associated with these kinds of impulses, perhaps being on an Amazon shopping page, the allure of social media, checking messages if we're dating someone, the allure of uh, food, a specific kind of food, visualize that. And then try to, as we hold these images in our mind, become aware of where we experience the feelings that are at root of these impulses. So imagining something that we have a almost addictive reliance on and then just seeing if we can, and of course, if we bid the feelings to come up, they'll be very subtle. They won't be like the feelings we experience, but are often not aware of when we're actually in the midst of repetition compulsion, where we are actually in the midst of a, uh, a binge of something, but you still will be able to feel some of the, hopefully, an inclination of where you feel the feelings. And just see if we can soften the body around these feelings, breathe into perhaps the area of the belly or the chest, wherever we feel this impulse at root. Just learning to soothe 
these feelings. And so now let's flip the uh, exercise to something that we are very often frightened or scared of that's actually good for us. So some of us might have social anxiety as a result of the pandemic. interacting with others, or some of us might uh, have uh, fear of disclosing certain feelings to others, because in earlier experiences in life, people were not safe, were not empathetic. Some of us might have tendencies of perfectionism, procrastination, because certain areas that we want to grow in, creative areas, areas where we can move towards different careers and so forth, every time we move towards those endeavors, we experience negative feelings, even though these are worthy behaviors and goals. So we want to become aware of these feelings that underpin avoidance, stalling, procrastination, or even the feelings underpinning fear when we're in entirely safe situations like speaking in public. So visualize a situation that you'd like to be able to do comfortably, but often feel quite the contrary. You don't feel comfortable. They make you anxious. Just visualize that experience in its most intense form, and then see if you can observe the feeling of fear or withdrawal, fight, flight, fawn, for some of us might feel real feelings of insecurity when it just comes to stating our needs to others, or for asking for support. So visualize that situation and see how these feelings manifest in your body.
we can practice the same down-regulation of the feelings. So softening the belly, full, long exhalations, dropping a very simple phrase associated with empathy and kindness into the body, dropping the phrase from the mind, I love you, keep going. I care about these feelings. Softening the muscles around the area that responds to these situations. The stress tolerance is all about learning how to find feelings, observe them, but not act on their behalf, and to learn how to soothe the feelings so that we can become capable of moving towards goals that were previously elusive. So this time I'm going to ring the bowl and just take your time transitioning from this internal awareness of feelings to a balanced state. And for the rest of uh, tonight, see if you can carry some awareness of feelings as you move through the rest of the class and into your evening the more we become aware of the feelings that underpin all of our choices and behaviors, the more we can you know when to follow feelings and when to learn to override them. <laughs> 